on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Well, I was, of course, not only very drawn to some of the new archaeology and the linguistics and the DNA studies, but also to some of the new theories about how living systems function, a self-organizing theory, uh, chaos theory, nonlinear dynamics. If we look at modern history from that perspective, we see that during the last 300 years of the Industrial Revolution, you begin to see patterns in what otherwise seems completely disconnected. You see that every progressive social movement has challenged the same one thing, a tradition of domination whether it was the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule or the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children or the, well, the abolitionists, the civil rights, the, uh, well, the Black Lives Matter movement challenging another so-called divinely ordained right of a, quote, superior race to rule over inferior ones. I mean, the struggle for our future isn't between right and left and capitalism and socialism and east and west and north and south. It's between the partnership and domination elements in all these different cultures. And once we get that, we can just move. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Dr. Rian Eisler, a social system scientist, cultural historian, an author whose research, writing, and speaking has made an enormous impact on the cultural landscape. I first encountered her work through the book The Chalice and the Blade, where she first articulated her cultural transformation theory of history, which includes the lens of dominator versus partnership society. In the decades since, she's written numerous other books, including Sacred Pleasure, and most recently, Nurturing Our Humanity. Dr. Eisler is president of the Center for Partnership Studies, as well as given keynotes at the United Nations General Assembly, the U.S. Department of State, along with countless corporations and universities offering applications of the partnership model introduced in her work. In our conversation today, we cover the foundations of her cultural transformation theory, along with her own childhood experience of fleeing Nazi Germany. We look at the limitations of language that have so far prevented the depth of cultural change we urgently need and how sharing a new mythology of partnerism may yet generate a more humane and environmentally sustainable world. Before we begin, I wish to offer huge gratitude to my Patreon supporters, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you're stirred by this podcast, please consider joining. Supporters get access to exclusive bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes updates. Visit themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter to learn more. As well, the Mythic Masculine Network is alive and thriving. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. Each week, we explore shared practices, online councils, exclusive film screenings, and much more. 
Head to network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member. And now, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rian Eisler. Welcome, Rian, to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'd love to begin my interviews by asking my guests to share a little of where they are in this moment, you know, geographically, spiritually, emotionally, anything that feels true for you to share. Well, where am I right this moment? I'm in my office, in uh, my home, uh, on the Monterey Peninsula, which is very beautiful. My husband and I have been in isolation because of the COVID pandemic. And um, I, like many of us, am thinking of what this election will bring, what this next few months and the next year will bring. And I am very immersed in my work and my hopes for a better future. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Um, one in the research I was doing on your biography and um, some of your later writings. Uh, I mean, I was deeply impressed by the range and scope of the amount of um, accolades and acclaim and and significance of the work that you've offered over what seems like many decades now. Um, and in particular, for me, I was really affected by your, I, I think it was your first major book, The Chalice and the Blade where you know it was recommended to me by a few friends and people that had been sort of tracking this this cultural lens and i was working at the time on a film project called amplify her which was looking at the rise of the feminine in this case through uh, djs and producers of electronic music and by encountering your book and and the main ideas within it really provided a, a really significant mm, shift for me to understand you know both the cultural forces at work and also even to to begin to perhaps alleviate a kind of existential uh, crisis of, of masculinity as as you know ultimately synonymous with bad and terrible and and all that went wrong you know with humans um, and so for this interview I, uh, knowing that your work has since progressed quite far um, and I'd love to uh, to get there. I would love to begin with some of the main ideas of the book Chalice and the Blade because I do feel it was such a formative piece of, of um, sort of a cultural contribution, and to this regard. Um, and uh, first, I would love to ask, you know, how, what was it in your childhood and the way that you were brought up that was deeply um, impacted in your awakening into your life's work? Well, uh, I was a child refugee with my parents from the Nazis, uh, and we really escaped by a miracle. And we uh, managed to get to Cuba, to Havana, and um, there I grew up, of course, in the industrial slums, surrounded by poverty, experiencing poverty, until my parents you know, got back on their feet again. So all of these experiences very early really uh, 
led me to questions that I think many of us have asked, which is, does it have to be this way? When we humans have such an enormous capacity for uh, really consciousness and sensitivity and uh, caring and creativity, why has there been so much insensitivity, so much cruelty, so much destructiveness? And um, I eventually, through my research, that was the big question for me. And the question came down to what kind of a society will support uh, these capacities that we have for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, or inhibit it, inhibit them, and instead uh, really require the expression of the potential that we also have, of course, for insensitivity, cruelty, and destructiveness. So that um, meant that I eventually uh, really had to completely depart from the way society is conventionally studied. And it seems to have crystallized into, um, into the book with the title Chalice and the Blade. And I'd love for you to share, what do you mean when you say the chalice and the blade? Um, because it invokes such a mythic uh, undertone, but it also corresponds to what feels like these societal orders that you brought new insight into. Well, it took me a long time to write the book, 10 years of research wow. and uh, writing. And also took me a long time to really find that title. And of course, the chalice and the blade are symbols of power. One, the chalice, the other one, the blade. The blade being the power to dominate, to control, to take life. And the other being the power, the chalice power, the power to give life, to nurture life, to illuminate life. And as I write in The Chalice and the Blade, this is really not just symbolic, but it is how power is conceptualized depending to the degree to which a society falls on what I call the partnership domination social scale. In other words, it soon became very clear to me that I could not answer the questions of my childhood um, or any really fundamental questions about society by using the conventional social categories of right-left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist, socialist. For one thing, <laughs> there have been oppressive, repressive, violent regimes in every one of these social categories. So none of them answers the question of what society should we really build. Uh, moreover, and this was a, really a series of aha moments for me in my life. Uh, all these social categories, these conventional categories, like uh, conventional studies of society, 
either marginalize or ignore the majority of humanity, women and children. And in The Chalice and the Blade, I told the history of our cultural evolution from what we might call a gender holistic perspective, uh, which doesn't marginalize or ignore the female half, uh, the female form of our species. And what the book showed is basically, in a nutshell, that the story that we've been told, you know, the caveman cartoon, right? You know, he's got a weapon in one hand, a club, with the other one he's dragging a woman by the hair. So what does it tell us before our brains, much less our critical faculties, are formed? But too bad, but that's just human nature. That's how it's always been, and by implication, how it always must and will be. And that is totally false. And the book uh, really, I mean, people, in, including you, uh, told me that it's even more timely now than it was when it came out 30 years ago. And as a matter of fact, if people get the book, I would urge you, get the latest printing, which is, I think, the 57th U.S. printing, because I wrote for the 30th anniversary a new epilogue, which brings it up to date. One of the things I appreciated about it was it really expanded what felt like an intractable um, conundrum, which is oftentimes when the words like patriarchy are brought out today, they're sort of seen as this um, inherent challenge of rule, the rule of men, right? That, that men maybe inherently have this bias towards this way of, of hierarchy and, and domination. And that essentially the way forward is to get men to either surrender, you know, this kind of inherent toxicity, right, within their, their system and their conditioning, uh, and or um, install women uh, in the seats of power as if that will inherently change the system. And I think that that's starting to show uh, it's um, not the case, actually, that, yeah, you can put a woman in a position of power, but if the system doesn't change, then not much really changes. And so, you know, I really appreciate it in your book that you expanded upon that capacity to actually see differently. And you spoke a little bit about it already, this um, labels of, of dominator versus partnership model, which um, I thought was very profound. I would love for you to share just a little too about the historical context about, you know, how this came in, because I think also one of the um, spells of modernity, right, is that things have always been this way and or they were just inevitable. And, you know, what are you going to do about it? But, you know, in the book, you do track some of the like very specific sort of sweeping uh, historical shifts that happened. I mean, I'm thinking particularly around uh, the the wave of invasions that um, impacted the Neolithic peoples that were seemed to be much more um, based on the partnership model. So again, I know this is a, a vast territory, but I'd love for you to paint a little bit for the listener that again may have very little knowledge of that that is actually trackable on the historical record. Well, my work really looks at uh, human cultural evolution from the perspective of the tension between, on one end, the domination system, which has a particular configuration in which, yes, gender 
plays a major part, the social construction of gender roles and relations, or the partnership system, uh, again, a particular configuration. So you're quite right. This really has nothing to do with anything inherent in women or in men. Uh, what we have to understand is it really is a question of how do we socialize both women and men and what values uh, do we attribute to being a real man and, quote, being really feminine. And, of course, we've inherited a lot of stories. Well, first of all, stories about human nature, you know, whether it's original sin or selfish genes, it's the same story. I mean, they fight each other, but why? It's the same story. We're bad. There's something wrong with us. So we have to be really rigidly controlled from the top. Then there is a story about women and men and I don't know, um, it, you know, I suddenly woke up uh, to realize, um, along with thousands of other women, you know, during the 1960s, late 1960s, that as much as having been born Jewish had almost cost me my life, having been born female had had a tremendous impact on my life, my life options. And I, I realized that in all my years of so-called higher education, there had been hardly anything by, about, or for people like me, women. And that was a wow for me. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it really makes sense, doesn't it? Because as David, the historian of, of science, uh, David Noble wrote, in his book aptly titled, A World Without Women, um, and I would also say it was a world without children. It, it, modern science came out of a clerical, a misogynist, celibate, all-male culture. Um, and it was only 50 years ago that we even had anything like women's studies and then men's studies and gender studies and queer studies, and they're still marginalized in the siloed system of our universities. So my approach was completely different. I drew from a much larger database. And I won't go into all of the sources because they were totally multidisciplinary. Uh, but I not only drew from a database that includes the whole of our species, both the female and male form and everybody in between, but also where we all live, not just politics and economics as conventionally defined, which is the focus of sociology, political science, economics, and so on, but where we all live in our family and other intimate relations. And then, of course, the whole of our history, including that long span that we call prehistory, millennia. And uh, I wrote The Chalice and the Blade at a time when a lot of this knowledge was just beginning to bubble up. And it was very exciting uh, because archaeology, the study of mythology, and of course today linguistics, DNA studies, all show that 
actually the original direction of our cultural evolution for millennia until about five to 10,000 years ago was primarily in a partnership direction. Uh, and then there came this shift, many theories about why, uh, but it came. And to me, what I've really been dealing with more and more is that we've been trying to really go back, not to any, quote, good old days, but to the partnership configuration in the last several hundred years during the disequilibrium of the Industrial Revolution, now accelerating during the real dislocations of, well, the post-industrial revolution, COVID-19, the climate change. I mean, a lot is basically saying, hey, we better change or else. It makes me think of how this current collective crisis really feels like the consequence of, of um, a, a dominator system. It definitely is. I mean, because at a certain level of technological development, including the tremendous rise in population that modern medicine, which is a good technological development, but without family planning, it's been a disaster, mm. you know, be between these tremendously powerful technologies of industrialization uh, and the population explosion, the domination system really is reaching its logical end in terms of finite resources on this planet. And then there's much more than that, of course, because we have now the weaponry, you know, the technologies of destruction that we only used to attribute to an all-powerful male deity, right? Mm -hmm. You know, well, we've got them. Biological warfare, uh, nuclear warfare. So if guided, if technology is guided by an ethos of domination, we have really, again, uh, had it as a species. I so appreciate that as well because it does open up almost like a, a completely other way of thinking about what is technology because it feels like, like you say, if, if technology is put in service of a dominator system, then how we perceive technology or how we perceive um, these great, you know, quote, advances um, and their impacts it only seems in that direction, right? Like even the ones that say, whoa, you know, technology is inherently bad. Um, but then I start to wonder again, like what would technology be like if it was put in service of a partnership model, right? A partnership culture, what would it, you know, what kinds of things would we create? Like social media, for example, could be completely different if it was actually geared towards building connection and relationship instead of uh, sort of extracting um, attention, you know, for, for economic gains and things like that. Well, I think that uh, in my later books, I actually address that issue in my book on economics, uh, The Real Wealth of Nations, subtitled Creating a Caring Economics of Partnerism, actually. This is where I introduce what is now becoming a campaign, Make Partnerism Mainstream. I deal with this issue of technology. The I, I recently gave the keynote, uh, virtually, actually, 
to the conference of AI, artificial intelligence, for good. Wow. And, of course, the point I made is that really it, the whole issue isn't the artificial intelligence, it's how is it programmed. And that, in turn, really depends uh, on whether we orient to a partnership or a domination system. And also, and this is vital, because we've inherited a gendered system of values, in which anything that in domination systems is stereotypically associated with real masculinity, you know, domination, conquest, uh, the notion that a real man is characterized by not being like a woman, uh, which means he's not going to be soft, he's not going to be caring, he's not going to do caregiving, all the things that so many men are today rejecting, by the way, and saying, wait a minute, I mean, caring is human. Of course it is. Uh, but the point of it is that that gendered system of values has really affected our social and fiscal and economic priorities. So consider there's always enough money for prisons, right? And what's that? That's the sort of archetype that we've inherited of the punitive male head of households. Very appropriate for domination systems. Always enough money for weapons, for wars. Another domination archetype, the hero as warrior, as killer. But somehow we don't have enough money for the, quote, soft, the feminine, like health care, child care, uh, paid parental leave, support for parents, education for parents. I mean, it's crazy. And uh, going back to the chalice and the blade, if you remember, I have some chapters, two chapters in the book called Reality Stood on Its Head. Mm -hmm which was a remissing process. And so I think of my work now as a really standing reality right side up. Uh, beautiful. You know, I realize with the listener too, they, they may have different understandings even of, of what they understand dominator or, or partnership to be. And um, I would love for you to just illuminate perhaps more clearly some of the characteristics of either so they can have a sense now of of exactly what we mean when we say these terms? Well, the method I use is called the study of relational dynamics. Mm. And, of course, it, it one thing it addresses is what kinds of relationships does a particular social system support or inhibit. Uh, but also, it addresses the question of how do the major elements of the system, the critical elements, uh, relate to one another and support one another. And I say that as a preface because we are so used to thinking of just linear causes and effects. But with living systems, we're learning, and societies like the human body, like the human being, you know, we're complex systems, and you have to really think more of interconnections and mutually supporting relationships. So, we're talking about configurations. And these are, as I said, two poles. And real societies 
orient to one or to the other. Uh, you know, we see it in the United States today, you know. We see both elements. But let me, let me answer your question, if I may. Um, in the domination system, first of all, you have an authoritarian, uh, top-down system of relations in both the family and the state or tribe. Whereas in the partnership system, and that's the first element of both systems, in the partnership system, you have more equality, more democracy in both the family and the state or tribe. And as you can tell, one of the things that distinguishes this approach is that it's holistic. Mm -hmm. The second thing is relates to gender. And it's very interesting because in domination systems, domination-oriented societies, you see this universally, whether it's in Hitler's Nazi Germany, in Stalin's former Soviet Union, you know, rightist, leftist, uh, whether it's religious, you know, because these are secular, Khomeini's Iran, ISIS, the Taliban, or the rightist fundamentalist alliance in the West the rigid ranking of one form of human over the other form, men over women. Whereas in the partnership side, you have more gender partnership. And what happens really is what I mentioned before, the values, the governing values of the society are directly impacted by this because men no longer define their, quote, masculinity as not being like the soft, feminine, you know, caring, caregiving, nonviolence. Those are not for real men. The third element, and, and these are all interconnected and mutually supportive, is the degree of abuse and violence. To maintain these top-down rankings, whether it's man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, you name it, you really have to have socially accepted, built-in abuse and violence, all the way from child and wife beating to warfare, from, to pogroms, to lynchings. Uh, you move to the partnership site, of course there's some violence, in partnership-oriented societies, but it's not built into the system. Hmm. Uh, it's not needed to maintain these rigid rankings. And the fourth element relates really to story and to language. You know, in the domination system, as we are beginning to untangle, and as my work really incisively dissects, I would say, uh, we are told stories that not only justify, but actually idealize domination systems and make them seem inevitable, just human nature. Uh, whereas in the partnership system, we recognize that we have, you know, these capacities for violence, for cruelty, for destructiveness, but they're not the ideal norm. Uh, I mean, it, it's a crazy system when you really look at the domination system. But, you know, if you fast forward, for example, uh, when 
Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, there was a study at that time that a lot of the Trump supporters uh, were very much into uh, controlling and spanking and punishing their children. And there was another study that said that one of the things that they had in common was this terrible hostility and fear of so-called uppity women. I mean, it, it, it's almost textbook. You know, my latest book, which just came out with Oxford University Press um, last year in 2019, uh, co-authored by anthropologist uh, Douglas Fry, uh, that book has a lot of studies really showing what happens with our brains. How Well, the subtitle is How part Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. Well, you bring up something really interesting to me too, which is, you know, I, I have experience is in another community uh, in Portugal, actually called Tamara, of which I'm, I'm spending, I've spent a few years making a film about their alternative culture, which I would say very much is an exploration into into partnership society. Um, and what they said one time was how how these inner structures that we carry within being raised in a dominator system, it's almost like, you, it's like you can't just put somebody raised in a dominator system in a partnership system and they suddenly, you know, click and they get it. It's actually, um, there's almost like a, a, a sway of needing to have a structured dominating system because in some ways it feels safer, right? And I and I see the core. It's familiar. Exactly, it's yeah. It's familiar. So there's like a parallel it feels like between even like one's own family, if there was a dominator structure, you know, with a kind of authoritarian parent that sort of had it in charge, even if there was fear of violence. You're going to vote for strongman rule, whether exactly. it's here, whether it was in Egypt, where they voted in a totally authoritarian, you know, religious regime. Uh you know, I mean, it was tragic. Mm -hmm. It is tragic. But as you say, it feels safer, especially in times of rapid change. And so what do you think is the inner work that people need to do in some sense to correspond with this, the cultural frame, you know, that, that it, because it strikes me that that is a parallel endeavor, you know, that's needed to, in a way, clear the inner structures to be able to work in partnership. Well, I think the good news is that we can change all through life, but it's hard. It is really hard. And uh, studies actually from neuroscience show that the part of the brain that makes us able to adjust to change, like, uh, like uh, well, the famous, the famous study um, years ago was of a dog slowly turning into a cat. Uh, people who were of this rigid domination authoritarian type had a heck of a time seeing the cat. And then uh, more recently, as, as uh, one of the studies actually in um, Nurturing Our Humanity in my latest book, is by a neuroscientist and his team uh, studying the brain structure of these people. And yeah, the part of the brain that makes it possible for us to shift, mm. you know, to come out of, it, 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 they can't, they have a terrible time. 
so you can understand climate change denial. Uh, but the thing is that they do respond to the authority figure. And if, if for example, we could by a miracle get uh, some of the people who now respond to say some evangelical leaders who say, you know, Trump was sent by God, he's flawed and whatever, uh, and say we were, you know, but it's not likely that they're going to do that is the problem. So we have a real problem with a good part of the population, but not everybody raised in these kinds of families uh, reacts this way. Um, that also is the good way, so that a certain percentage can shift. And for the rest of us, there are so many people today, and, and the so-called crisis of masculinity isn't really a crisis of masculinity any more than women redefining femininity was a crisis of femininity. It's really a social uh, awakening waking up from the domination trance and and from all of these archetypes, you know, whether it was Jung with the anima and the animus, oh my gosh, I mean, talk about built-in sexism. Mm. It, 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 you know, it's fantastic. Or the mythologies that we're taught about, you know, real men have to kill before they get to mate. I mean, all, you know, we're surrounded by this stuff. But the good news, again, is we can change the myths. And so many younger, mostly, but also older people, like me, <laughs> are changing the story. And we humans live by story. That's powerfully said. In the book, you reference how this time mirrors uh, the end of the Roman Empire, in some ways, of of a kind of you know chaotic... Uh, liminal space um, where the possibility of a Gylanic, if I'm saying that correctly, yeah, the Gylanic yes. resurgence um, has has a possible uh, ability to assert itself more fully or to pollinate, you know, a wider. And, and you use this phrasing around like attractors or like the role of attractors in liminal times. And I'd love for you to sketch that out a bit for the listener because I found it so helpful. Well, I... Um was, of course, not only very drawn to some of the new archaeology and the linguistics and the DNA studies, but also to some of the new theories about how living systems function, a self-organizing theory, a chaos theory, nonlinear dynamics. And I borrowed the term attractor um, and, and thinking of the partnership model and the domination or dominator model as two attractors. Now, I think that if we look at modern history from that perspective, we see that during the last 300 years of the Industrial Revolution, really, if you look at modern history, again, you begin to see patterns in what otherwise seems completely disconnected, you see that every progressive social movement has challenged the same one thing, a tradition of domination, whether it was the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule or the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children or the 
well, the abolitionists, the civil rights, the, uh, well, the Black Lives Matter movement, challenging another so-called divinely ordained right of a, quote, superior race to rule over inferior ones. Uh, you know, the movements for really social and economic equity, the movements against violence, including the more most recent movement, which is very important, challenging this pandemic of violence that we're just finally documenting against women and children globally, globally. And that is really important all the way to the environmental movement challenging our once hallowed conquest and domination of nature, right? But if you look at these movements, they focus primarily on, on dismantling what I call the top of the domination pyramid. Politics and economics is conventionally defined. And they've left the foundations on which this domination system keeps rebuilding itself, whether it was in, in Hitler's Germany or the Stalin Soviet Union or Khomeini's Iran or the Taliban or ISIS or, you know, right here in the United States, the rightist fundamentalist alliance. Uh, which is really what 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 do children learn? So childhood is one cornerstone. Gender, as I mentioned, we have inherited a gender system of values. Economics, our economic systems are really shaped by this gendered system of values, both capitalism and socialism, and which is why we at the Center for Partnership Studies develop new metrics to show the economic contribution value of the work of caring for people starting in childhood and caring for nature, and of course, story and language. If we don't work together, I mean, yes, we need to do the short-term work. You know, I mean, it's crazy to have uh, funding for, and, 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 and really, I mean, giveaways to fossil fuel <laughs> companies. Uh, but, but we also need to join together to be, rebuild these cornerstones, shift them from domination to the partnership side. And that is what this work is really about now for me. And that's what the Make Partnerism mainstream campaign is all about. In the book, you also mentioned that, um, and again, I know this is 30 years ago now, uh, but you spoke to feminism as like a primary uh, force for this correction of, of dominator to partnership. And I just appreciated the lens there too, because I think that, you know, a lot of contemporary ways of speaking about feminism are often portraying it as, you know, inherently man-hating or something like that, right? And and in some ways, I'm, I'm feeling like, oh, it's interesting, like the dominator system would portray it that way, right? Because in, in that way, it actually makes it um, sort of less v viable for the general populace to take it up, right? Because those will say, well, you know, I, and I hear a lot of women say this, right? They're like, well, I guess I'm not a feminist because I don't hate men, right? And so they, they kind of refuse to, to step into that active participation. Um, but the way that you characterize it is that it's, it's fundamentally opposes the dominator system, which actually is a much more compelling, I think, invitation for for both men and women and others to participate based on that. Um, and I wonder, you know, now 30 years on too, do you feel that feminism has 
sort of gone down certain paths that maybe weren't as helpful? Or do you feel it's as robust in contemporary culture now as it's ever been? You know, there are many feminisms. And uh, there are some women who have been so hurt in their relations with men who have embraced and acted out the domination archetype, stereotype, that, yeah, they, they probably have an enormous amount of anger against men. But, and, and certainly there is anger against injustice and against being ignored and silenced. That's part of feminism. But the question is uh, recognition. See, I, I don't talk about patriarchy and matriarchy. For one thing, think about it for a minute. This is the language that we're provided for a gender-specific category, either men rule or women rule. So it's really just two sides of the domination coin, isn't it? There is no partnership alternative. So I think that feminism, uh, in the sense of empowering uh, both women and men to change these stereotypes which really limit and, and distort the humanity of both women and men, that is at the bottom what it's about. Uh, how it's going to be interpreted by people who have been really hurt and damaged by their life experiences uh, with domination and oppression, hey, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's going to be there too. But um, I don't use the term, I'm a feminist, in the sense that I obviously believe, look, if you look at uh, Sweden, Finland, Norway, which have more caring policies, uh, they also have half of their national legislature is female. And I look at it more in terms of dynamics. As the status of women rises, men no longer find it such a threat to their status, to their, quote, masculinity, mm-hmm. to also embrace more feminine stereotypically feminine values. So men voted for universal health care, for good quality child care, for very generous paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers. This is not uh, a question of, um, I, I mean, it's not a question of feminism. It's really a question to me of a partnership alternative. And going back to The Chalice and the Blade, which was the first book, as you said, for a popular audience, uh, describing my findings, uh, we, we are really not talking about a matriarchy here. We're talking about more partnership-oriented cultures. Uh, but but in the dominator mind, you know, there are only two alternatives. You either dominate or you're dominated. Mr. Trump said it. You know, it's all about domination. Poor man, he doesn't see mm. that there is a viable and much more effective partnership alternative. Thank you for that. Um, the book you followed uh, Chalice and the Blade with, I believe, was the one on sacred sexuality. That's correct? It's called Sacred Pleasure. Mm. The subtitle is Sex, Myth, 
and the politics of the body. Mm. And it prefigures a lot of my later writing because the first part, um, in, in Spanish, it's been published in two volumes um, because the first part is really about how what happened to to rip sexuality and spirituality asunder, mm. you know? Because we still see traces of that. If you think about candles, music, flowers, wine, you know, it's about sex, about romance, but it's also about our most sacred rights. And the word passion, we use it for romantic, sexual love, but also for the mystical experience of religion. So the traces are still there. So what happened? How does, what happened to the sacred marriage, the sacred union of female and male? Well, I mean, a lot happened to it, and that's what the first part of the book is really about. The second part is about now. And just as with Chalice, it is so relevant still today. And it makes a point that I'd like to reiterate, that a lot of what happened with the so-called sexual revolution really was not a revolution. It was giving women permission to embrace the so-called masculine hookup role, you know, in sexual relations uh, to the terrible dissatisfaction of women, certainly, but also of men. With no ethic, I mean, in Sacred Pleasure, I actually propose an ethic for sexual relations, not necessarily for long-term relations, Mm. but an ethic. You know, why do we say all's fair in love and war? That's crazy. Wow. I would love to know a little of that ethic, actually. I'm I'm really intrigued by that. Well, you read the book. <laughs> it's on order. <laughs> the other piece that comes to me with this is, I mentioned prior my, my film project, Amplify Her, which I co-directed with a, a female director, and it was largely um, expanded upon into a graphic novel series, um, a, you know, a motion comic, um, with many other female creatives. And it also featured uh, women creatives, um, you know, DJs and producers. But the through line for that for me was really trying to um, empower or make visible this sort of erotic creative vitality that these women were expressing. And, and it was fascinating to watch, again, like, you know, how it was received by certain certain communities, right? Certain folk, certain film festivals, right? Because some looked at that and they said, oh, well, uh, that's uh, one, it's still this kind of hangover of sexuality is sort of, you know, impure or or lesser than or, you know, just like the carnal was denigrated in some sense. Um, that it was, yeah, it was sort of, yeah, lesser than. And then the others that would say, well, this is actually going backwards for feminism, they were saying. Like the, the, the ability to actually embrace that there was something specific and unique about the erotic vitality and creativity of, of the feminine felt for some that it was going backwards, right? Is this like, what do you mean? You know, actually we're all the same. And so any differentiation is just conditioning and it's holding us back and da, da, da. And so I hear in what you're saying though, that there is this like primal creative force um, that is significant. And and for me, I guess I, I'm curious, is so much of what is necessary to actually, you know, create this partnership um, balance. Because like I said, if, if without those things, then it's so much, it's just the same male system. It just happens to be occupied by women. And I think that it ha- what has been one of the 
problems, you still have this male, or, the, or, or rather not male, the quote masculine, mm -hmm. as defined in domination systems, as the norm. And when I speak now, of course, I, I talk about the COVID pandemic uh, as not going back to, quote, normal. You know, normal, where in this wealthy United States, one quarter of all children lived in poverty, where we're destroying our natural life support systems. It's about creating a new normal, new norms. And stories, archetypes, informed now by the consciousness of the partnership alternative and that there's going to be a lot of experimentation uh, in, in getting there. See, in the 60s, uh, I remember so well, we mistook rebellion for reconstruction. Wow. And let's not make the mistake this time. I mean, resistance is important, but it, we need to reconstruct the system. And for that, we need to understand the configuration of the partnership system. And so if the erotic in women and that creative energy is to be valued, then you have to be careful that, yeah, that it isn't really perceived as just, well, you know, this, it, this is enough. It isn't enough. For that to work, men also uh, really have to redefine what it means to be a, quote, real man, which fortunately so many, look, so many men today are diapering babies, mm. feeding babies. They're getting endorphins, you know, mm. neurochemicals of pleasure through the grace of evolution for doing this. Uh, but I, I think that it's just as much men waking from the domination trance. And it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens. Uh, I'm, I'm rooting for us to move towards partnership archetypes and partnership myths, um, and I'm counting on people like you. Would you share, if you do have um, some mythologies, um that do speak to this the partnership model as you say stories are so vitally important in order to almost provide the like mimetic scaffolding for this energy to to flow well i can think of it in terms of deconstruction and reconstruction um as you know in both the chalice and the blade well you don't know because you haven't read sacred pleasure yet but i deconstruct the adam and eve story uh -huh. fall from paradise you know when i was a kid I always wanted to know, it says in the Bible, henceforth, woman was to be subordinate to men. And I wanted to know, well, what was it like before the henceforth? <laughs> Nobody wanted to talk about it. I also wanted to know why would a woman take advice from a snake? We don't usually do that. Well, in terms of the old reality, uh, it made a lot of sense because the snake, as you see in the so-called goddess or priestess figures from Minoan Crete with high priestesses in a trance with snakes coiled around their arms. Or as you even read about later about the oracle of Delphi, who was it? It was a pythoness who worked with a python, a snake, 
for auricular oracular wisdom. So the snake, among other things, was a symbol of oracular wisdom. So for Eve to ask advice from a snake made a lot of sense in terms of the old reality. But then came the new domination, remissing elements. Uh, all of a sudden, seeking knowledge independently becomes a high crime, right? And she is blamed for all of you, like Pandora, right? It's not the only myth, blaming woman. And just think of what that does, because every man is born of woman. So if you can't trust your mother, whom can you trust? So then you get these schizophrenic archetypes like Jung does, you know? I mean, the virgin and the whore, right? Wow. I mean, th the whole thing is nuts. But new stories. Well, there are new stories, new fairy tales, in which... Uh, Poor Sleeping Beauty, you know, in the old fairy tale, she can't even wake up without a guy kissing her, right? I mean, she's so learned, powerless here, that kids learn. Well, you are beginning to have fairy tales. Yeah, they still look like the same old heroine, uh, but Disney has moved a little, just a little bit, towards the empowerment of the heroine in these stories. We need to move a lot more. You know, all kinds of body types, not, you know, the male gaze and what, what is this week considered to be the, in, in our particular culture, you know, female attractiveness. And so there is a movement, but we've got to accelerate this. And there are so many stories now coming out of the male hero as somebody who cares. I mean, Bono is a life example. I don't know about his private life, but publicly, here's a guy who has really done good and modeled a caring masculinity. You know, little by little, but what we need is a mass movement. I would like to see artists and filmmakers and video makers and you know, just get together and brainstorm this mm. and say what, I mean, I, I, I would be very happy to consult to such a group. Wow. Um, it, it's just so important that we be really focused now on telling stories that can help us heal, that can help us really remiss so that we can move more towards the partnership side. And it is a question, I mean, you've got a two-year-old son. Mm -hmm. um, hey, it, it's, we're talking about their future, and do they have one? Mm -hmm. It's up to us. Thank you. You know, what comes to me as I, I look out actually at pop culture is certainly there are some encouraging examples, I feel, of, of different kinds of um, storytelling, different kinds of um, conflicts, you know, being set up. And I see, uh, you know, I was literally browsing on the the options, you know, the other day, uh, trying to watch a, a different TV series, you know, and, and I, I tried a few, but I actually couldn't watch them after a certain point because of the level of violence and conflict that was like just so uh, rampant. And so for me, I was struck by, 
even if I'm trying to find examples of maybe I'll call them partnership-based narratives, like I don't even know what that would look like, right? I don't even know how many narrative writers even can conceive of narrative structures that are outside of a dominator model. And so it's such an interesting challenge, you know, uh, because like you say, we need to be telling stories with that particular lens. And it's so fascinating to even watch how how hard it is to even imagine something outside of the dominator structures in which so many of us grew up. Well, I'd love to see a series based on some of them, what we can reconstruct of the mythology of these earlier and more partnership-oriented societies in which really, first of all, the natural and the spiritual was not separated. I mean, we call it animism, but that's not quite right because they had a system, what looks like a system. I mean, you know, everything is interpretation here, but the signs are so clear if you look at the art of birth and death and regeneration with sex being the medium for both. So you have sexual rights Mm. as part of the sacred. I mean, that would be very interesting, wouldn't it, to have a series based on that mythology, which apparently still survived in the so-called high civilization of Minoan Crete. Mm. And uh, in Sacred Pleasure, you'll see that I do a deconstruction of the Theseus and the Minotaur myth. Because the Minotaur is really the old bull god, but he's now demonized like the Christian devil, horned and hoofed. But now he's, he's the product of this not sacred marriage, between like Inanna and Dumuzi, you know, whom she calls her bull, her, her, her sacred bull. Uh, it, 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 it's just totally remissed. And we can, sacred pleasure would be a far, fab, fabulous source for scripts, hmm. wow. for a series like that. Well, if, uh, if Netflix is listening, then uh, get on it. <laughs> You know, what made me think of the bull as well and starting to recognize, you know, different symbology popping up in culture is um, one of my previous films was called Occupy Love, which was uh, co-directed or sorry, directed by Velcro Ripper. And it was co-produced by uh, myself and, and Nova Emmy. And that really looked at the first year of the Occupy movement, um, you know, from New York onward. But what was fascinating was one of the main posters that came out, I believe it was Adbusters magazine that that sort of kicked off the the invitation, at least. Um, if you recall, was a bull, like the Wall Street bull, uh, but with a ballerina perched on top of the bull uh, with like riot police kind of just in the background, you know, behind. And But the ballerina is just poised, you know, so beautifully. And when I saw that image and, and possibly even when I read here later, I really invoked that sense of Crete. And I understand that they would ride bulls, right? as sort of their feats of... They had bull dancing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Both dancing. women and men did bull leaping. Uh-huh. And it's been reproduced. I mean, it, it requires, of course, raising the bull to be not a wild bull, but more more or less as much as you can domesticate a bull. Um, yeah, it's been reproduced. It, it, it's an art, the bull leaping. And women and men participated in it. Mm. It's, it's a, it was a fascinating culture that, 
you know, survived while so many of the adjacent cultures already were shifting heavily towards domination. And eventually it felt, of course, to the Mycenaeans. And uh, then you get the legend of Theseus and the Minotaur. Mm. Yeah, and the, and the hero reasserts as the idol idolization. Uh, oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, the whole idea of what is heroic, what is manly, becomes uh, very different, doesn't it? Mm. And what is feminine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know there's a lot more to go into with your later work, and... Um, I would love to offer or ask a little bit about, you know, how did then your understandings from Chalice and the Blade and, and beyond begin to crystallize, you know, into the the edge of where you are now in terms of where you see are the most um, compelling and necessary places to uh, to focus and to create change? Well, in Chalice, I really was trying to answer the question of how did we get here? But the book does end with two scenarios, you know, the partnership or the domination scenario. And it does go into some of modern history. And then in Sacred Pleasure, of course, I ne- it was funny because that wasn't the book I was going to write, but it was just compelling to be written. Mm. I mean, you know, I just had to write it. Um, and there I really looked at how sexuality and spirituality, and with them, pain and pleasure, which is one of the running themes because domination systems are really basically held together by fear of pain or pain, whereas there can be more sharing of pleasure, sexual and otherwise, in partnership Mm. systems. But already in that book, I started to look at, well, where to really elaborate on what do we need to do. So then I wrote a book on education called Tomorrow's Children. And it it really, speaking of stories, now you might find stories in there that are of interest because, you know, curriculum is a story. And unfortunately, most of... Uh, so-called progressive education has focused only on process, to some extent on structure, but not enough on content, on story. And, and this book really focuses on that. And, you know, and then I wrote a book that was my version of a how-to book, mm. uh, The Power of Partnership, which, by the way, uh, is used in uh, courses, because it ends with practical, you know, to-dos. I mean, to do now and to do later and so on. And then I wrote my book on on economics, The Real Wealth of Nations. Uh, In between, I wrote a book on healthcare with a former PhD student of mine, which won a couple of awards, by the way. And then I wrote um, Nurturing Our Humanity, I I worked on that book for 10 years, and then about seven years into it, I invited Douglas Fry to join me, not only because he's probably one of the 
world authorities on foraging societies. And that's how we lived for millennia, millions of years. And he calls them the original partnership societies. I mean, so this is part of the human psyche, by the way. Um, But that book wasn't only about the four cornerstones that I mentioned of childhood, gender, economics, but a different economics and story and language. It, it was also about going deeper to what we're learning from neuroscience. And what we're learning from neuroscience completely contradicts the old story about both human nature. If anything, we are wired The pleasure centers in our brains in studies light up more when we share and care than when we win. But because our brains and hence how we feel, think, and act, including how we vote, they really develop in interaction with our early environments uh, because we have such a flexible brain. Uh, and that brain structure is laid in the first five years. So much depends on the degree to which we orient to the partnership or domination side, which in turn is where the four cornerstones of childhood, gender, uh, economics, but as I said, a caring economics of partnerism and story and language come in. And that is where I am right now to really make partnerism mainstream because it can be so liberating and so empowering. And so much of what is happening, I mean, the struggle for our future isn't between right and left and capitalism and socialism and East and West and North and South. It's between the partnership and domination elements in all these different cultures. And once we get that, we can just move and that's what this is about. Wow. I just want to say how much I appreciate that articulation. And then also, yeah, what I feel is there's such a, a power of story in in what's possible. You know, that, that partnership, partnerism is possible. Like just that alone is, is completely uh, invigorating, you know, in a sense. That otherwise, because the dominant culture provides so little alternatives that are meaningful, right? And I think a lot of people who wake up to this and they recognize, wait, there's actually nothing uh, else proposed, end up falling into depression or numbing out or, um, you know, anger and all the rest because there's, it feels like there's nowhere to go. And I really appreciate that you've offered such a clear uh, articulation and, and pathway into what's possible for our future. Well, that's what this is all about because you wouldn't build a house without building solid foundations mm. for it. And it's... rebellion uh, is not enough we really have to reconstruct and for that we need this blueprint of what we have to build so that we don't keep having these regressions Mm -hmm. you know and they're getting more and more dangerous all the time so enough Mm. let's do it (laughs) well that's a fitting place to end then for now Rian, I feel very grateful for your time today and um, to yeah to hear a little bit about your extensive work and your dedication over so many decades to putting this forth and into the world. So 
uh, yeah, on behalf of myself and, and all the listeners. Yeah, I really, really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Ian. Thank you. And I'm counting on you mm. for the stories and language because mm. we need new language. The old language keeps us trapped. You know, and I really would like to end on that. Linguistic psychologists have long told us something that we should pay attention to, that the categories, and this is especially true of social categories, provided by our language channel our thinking. So it's almost impossible to see alternatives. So that's why this language of the partnership system and the lamination system partnerism that's so important Mm. well i'll do my best okay (laughs) thanks ryan well my pleasure thank you for listening to this episode of the mythic masculine if you enjoyed what you heard please consider leaving a review on apple podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media also you're invited to join the mythic masculine network a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.